Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we go in a different direction. We talk about journalism. We talk about oral history as well. We're joined by Aaron Elson. Aaron has been a newspaper copy editor for 40 years, currently for two newspapers in Connecticut. He is also an oral historian who has amassed more than 700 hours of interviews about World War II. He's turned them into books and a podcast. War is my father's tank battalion knew it. We haven't talked to oral history yet on this podcast, so looking forward to that. Hey, Aaron, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. Aaron's, pow- Aaron's appearance is due to the power of Facebook. We're both alums of the same high school, Stuyvesant, in New York City. So first of all, fill in the blanks on your career. Tell us about your path through the journalism world and how you got into copy editing. Well, I went to, after Stuyvesant, I went to City College of New York, which at the time was labeled the proletarian Harvard. It was during the turbulent 60s. I was a uh, bit of a draft dodger. I, I, I never knew that I was going to wind up becoming a military historian, but I did get out of the draft. I, I took some teaching courses, but I got a psychiatric deferment, which uh, was a little fudged, although you never know. And uh, then I, I went to CCNY and I joined the school newspaper, the campus, which had a rich and storied career, uh, heritage. And I always wanted to be a camp counselor. I loved summer camp when I was a kid. And I got a, uh, I lined up a counselor job. I was only 17 years old. You had to be 18 and I lied about my age. And they found out at the last minute, I was all packed and ready to go. I don't know if they ran a check or what, but uh, they said, uh, you know, no job. So some of the upperclassmen on the campus, the uh, newspaper, the school paper, worked part-time at the New York Post. And this was uh, around 1967. And they gave me the, you know, I called up, they said to call at night. And I called up and I went through three or four names of people from the school paper and none of them were there. And they said to ask for somebody named Ben Green. And the guy on the phone said, I'm Ben Green. And the next thing I knew, I was a copy boy sharpening pencils and bringing galley proofs to the editors. Copy person, that would be called today. But anyway, uh, one thing led to another. uh, And I, I wound up working sometimes two, three, four nights a week, all through college. And before long, I was a, I wound up as a, uh, an agate clerk in the sports department, uh, compiling uh, box scores and runs for the week and horse racing uh, tabulations. And one, one aspect of the job this was hot type. I, I don't know if you, uh, this was before your time and before a lot of people's time, but hot type, it was uh, all metal, lead, and they had forms 
And if a story didn't fill and left a hole, you know, what are you going to fill it with? So this was a sports department. They would fill it with uh, little stories, you know, two paragraphs, three paragraphs, one column, two column. You had to make up about uh, maybe half a dozen of them. And they would use stuff that came in over the uh, over the Associated Press sports wire, uh, mostly Japanese baseball games, and also stuff that came from public relations people. And one of those was the Worldwide Wrestling Foundation, <laughs> Worldwide Wrestling, whatever, the WWF, Worldwide Wrestling Foundation, I think. Anyway, uh, one night, I, I would always write the headlines for these things and send them out to the, uh, the, to the linotype uh, people, and they would set them and put them so that they could be thrown into the form if needed. And then they would send galley proofs to the big editors, you know, to just check out everything over. And one night, a galley proof came back to the sports department with a story circled and the notation good headline actually good head i think it said uh, and the author of the note was paul sand who was a legendary uh, managing editor in fact he was the he resigned god bless him he resigned when rupert murdoch bought the post uh, after a while he had his differences with murdoch but he was uh, he was the managing editor when Murdoch bought the post. Anyway, the, you know, it wasn't, you know, in retrospect, you know, 50 years later, it wasn't the greatest headline on earth, but it shaped my career. You know, it, uh, they, they knew I could write a headline and I was always fascinated by headlines. And the headline incidentally was uh, a wrestling headline where Bruno Sammartino, uh, legendary wrestler in his own right was he had the worldwide wrestling foundation championship belt and he was wrestling somebody named the sheik and the only way you could lose the belt you had to be pinned you had to be beaten fair and square and there was a lot of dirty wrestling going on if you were if you were disqualified you would lose the match but you would keep the belt until somebody beat you fair and square, so to speak. So Bruno Martino was losing the match and he left the ring. He got thrown out of the ring and he didn't come back. So he was disqualified. He kept the, he kept the championship belt. And this little headline I wrote was Bruno turns the other chic. <laughs> uh, you know, I guess that caught, caught Paul Sands' attention. And that that set my my career into a path of writing headlines, and not writing headlines, but editing copy and writing headlines. I'm kind of a self-taught copy editor. You know, I didn't choose to be a copy editor, and I had to learn a lot of things by rote. I, I still cannot map a sentence for if my life depended on it. But, you know, I picked up things I, I would, for years, uh, probably 25 years into my career, I would still send an instant message to my friend Kim Klein, who was much better at grammar than me, 
if I had to, if I couldn't figure out whether something was who or whom, eventually I finally did, <laughs> did get it into my head. But anyway, so uh, that uh, that's how I became a copy editor. I worked at the New York Post. I wound up as a, well, there was a time, the, the old time sports writers, and they had a hell of a sports department back when I started. And they would cover games and they would send their stories in by Western Union. Western Union had a real dirt cheap uh, night press rate. And back then, you know, in a, uh, I guess in a cost saving move, Western Union eliminated the night press rate and the price for a, a reporter to file a story went up sevenfold. I, I don't know exactly the figures, but it was a lot. So what they did was they went and they bought two big reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders and the sports writers would phone their stories in. Now, I, when I was in maybe seventh or eighth grade, now it would be, it was junior high school back then, but it would be called middle school today. My class took typing. So I wound up with this job at the post, you know, where I have a pair of headphones and I sit there with two reel-to-reel recorders recording one story and transcribing another and sometimes I would do like uh, maybe 14 16 stories a night and then I, I would have to not only uh, not only type them up but yeah you know the the uh, the old days of it was really a golden era but the copy desk was kind of a, uh, where you put old reporters out to pasture. And they had, one of the copy editors was an old boxing writer. You know, he, uh, he again, he was a legend in his, in his own time in the boxing world, Lester Bromberg, but he had, he had suffered a stroke. And so they, they did not have computers back then and everything was done manually you know you would have to make a paragraph mark and that's what he would do he wouldn't read the story if he did did read it uh, you know he wasn't able to do much with it and then there was another another sports copy editor i won't name names but he worked five nights a week and by nights, I'm talking midnight to eight. There was like a two o'clock deadline, two a.m. deadline, and then uh, the, you waited till the paper came up. But he worked five nights a week at the post. He worked two nights a week at the Daily News, and he worked two nights or two shifts a week, either at the uh, Newsday or the New York Times. I'm not sure which. He had a wife and a girlfriend, and he spent his days when he wasn't working at the at the racetrack. So he would come in and he would sleep for half the shift. So I pretty much learned, you know, if I let an error slip through in the transcription, it would wind up in the paper because much of this was not caught. So, you know, I had to edit the stories as well, which really, you know, it uh, I learned a lot. A lot as a copy editor 
uh, just doing that. And so uh, I eventually, ha I had a tryout as a sports writer, which you know I, I really wanted to do rather than being an editor. I was not a crazy sports fan, the, the way some sports people are. Uh, I got the job as the agate clerk because a, a sports writer passed away and the agate clerk got promoted to, he was one of my colleagues from the school paper. He got promoted to being a sports writer and they needed a clerk in the sports department, which was, you know, the pay group was group four as opposed to a copy boy, which was group one. So I, you know, I, I jumped at the opportunity. And so they had two other clerks. I worked nights and these two other clerks worked during the day and they came in after me and one of them got a, a, a tryout as a reporter. And I got pissed off because, you know, they, I, I was ahead of him in terms of uh, seniority. So they wound up giving three of us tryouts in a row, three month tryouts each. And I covered high school sports. I covered some boxing and I, I enjoyed it. But, you know, the, the die was cast and they, uh, they gave the job to the first one that they were going to give it to anyway. But I still wound up uh, as a, I got a job as, as a copy editor, which and this is about one thing about copy editing is that copy editors got, they did get some recognition, you know, in terms, it was a union shop, the, uh, the New York Post, and copy editors were at a higher pay grade than reporters. So, you know, somebody knew that copy editors were not that easy to find. And Every time there were contract negotiations, the reporters would say, hey, copy editors are paid more than us. So they would match the, the reporters up a little bit until they caught up with the copy editors pay-wise. <laughs> so uh, one, one thing about copy editors, which you know, I'll get to, is that they really don't get that much respect in the, in the uh, pantheon of the newspaper business, but they're they're vital, you know, that uh, they really do prevent a lot of errors getting into the paper. So anyway, <laughs> I guess uh, you might have some other questions before I just keep going. Yeah, so, all right, you you open the door to about six different lanes. We're gonna go down like one or two here. That would um, be a good idea. You, so you've, you've said that your role, and I love this, is to counsel wayward commas about their place in society, or at least in sentences. You worked for a tabloid, as you mentioned, the New York Daily News, you worked for the New York Post, uh, you were, the papers that you work for in Connecticut uh, are tabloid-ish. Um, all that. Um, what is your most memorable copy editing moment? Well, let me go back to the commas, because... <laughs> Going back to the 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 uh, post and the daily news, you know they they were professional and they they really knew where commas should go. Uh, going forward to the the Bergen Record and the uh, the younger reporters that I've worked with, they really misplaced commas and nobody really has drilled into them. 
how important it is. If you, uh, one, one thing about commas is that uh, there are memes, a lot of copy editing memes on the internet and they just love commas. You know, uh, I, I think if you, uh, I'm sure you've probably seen the one that says, uh, let's eat grandma and have dessert or let's eat grandma and do something. And if you don't put a comma before grand, you know, before eat, after eat, it says, let's eat grandma and have dessert. You know, the, there are, are so many examples of how not using commas properly screws up, uh, you know, a sentence. But in, in terms of my most memorable copy editing moment, you know, one thing about the Daily News, and I, I loved working at the Daily News back back in the day, so to speak. Uh, today, it's very different, except for their, their page one headlines. Their page one headlines are classic today uh, in the current environment. But there used to be a sort of an unwritten rule that you would write a story or your target audience was the housewife in Queens. That, uh, you know, there were certain lines you couldn't cross. And I saw those lines dissolve. Uh, there was, they had a new, a new managing editor. His name was Jim Wilsey. He went on, uh, he came from San Francisco. He went on to become the editor of the Star-Ledger. You know, a very, very prominent uh, editor. And one day the, the news broke a story that there was a, a gay nightclub, a, a biker bar uh, called the, the Mine Shaft. It was like way downtown under the uh, West Side Highway. And as the news or the post would do sometimes, they, you know, they had a tip and they followed through on it. And they discovered that the owner of the building, which was the, where the mine shaft was housed, was a, I believe a police official and the building was, uh, it was run as a nonprofit and it was a major story. And the, the, uh, the wood, I'll say that's an old newspaper term, the, the big, you know, 200 point headline was how the city got shafted. And I looked at that and now shaft is a, getting shafted is a euphemism. It's a euphemism for, I won't say what it is, but it begins with an F. And I looked at that, I was a guest, you know, this is the daily news. And this, this happened maybe a week or two before uh, the holiday, it was during the holidays and they had their annual Christmas party. And so at the Christmas party, I, I went up to uh, Will see the managing editor and I, I asked him, you know, uh, why is it that, uh, you know, we ran this headline, which was a direct euphemism. I, I forget how I phrased the question and he, looked at me, he said, I thought that was a great headline. And, you know, maybe today that would be seen as a good headline, but 
I thought, you know, this, this is going to open the floodgates. Now, I was in the sports department then. And about a week later, the, uh, the Nets, the New York, now the New York Nets, but they were the New Jersey Nets at the time, I think. And they had this horrendous losing streak on the road. They, they were not a very good basketball team. And sure enough, the big headline on the back page after they lost another game on the road was road apples. Now I'm I'm a city kid. I didn't know what a road apple was, but I, you know, asked and I learned that road apples were horse manure, you know, that they would drop these plots on the road. And so, you know, here that one headline, oh, I won't say it opened the floodgates, but it did give give the people who wrote headlines a little more leeway to be more risque. <laughs> so that that's that's a a moment that that always stuck with me. It's like a turning point in uh, journalism, such as it was. <laughs> All right, let, so let's transition into your best copy editing moment before we move on to the the World War II material. Well, I. I won't say it was my copy editing moment, but I've worked with some wonderful, wonderful headline writers. And one of them was a fellow named Hal Frankel at the Daily News. And he was, uh, he was an alcoholic. He would go out, uh, you know, during the lunch break. The lunch break was like at nine at night. Then he'd come back with a cup of orange juice, which was probably half vodka. And he had difficulty transitioning to, uh, to the computerization of the newsroom. And you were still allowed to smoke. And so I, I just loved this guy. You know, uh, he, he had such a way with headlines. And so I practically volunteered to sit next to him because his, his keyboard was like an ashtray and they had like this uh, zapper up above uh, that they installed, which would suck up the smoke and it would make uh, like an electric noise. But, you know, I just wanted to like uh, drink in his, his presence by osmosis. I figured it might make me a better headline writer. And when the, when the Giants, the New York Giants, it might've been 1969, won the uh, Super Bowl. And they had a celebration at Giant Stadium where they handed out kazoos. And, you know, you had 50,000 people with kazoos at the, you know, in unison. And he wrote it. The story went across two pages of the tabloid Daily News. And I don't know if it was 200 or 250 point type. He wrote a headline that said, start spreading kazoos. And, you know, <laughs> just, uh, just working with people like that. Um, but, you know, in terms of uh, a, a, copy, a copy editing moment, I, I really, I've had some newspaper moments, but not, uh, not real copy editing moments. All right. That I had to talk about. <laughs> all right. Usually, all right. Usually, you know, I will say 
some of the best headlines I've seen got the got the person who wrote them called on the carpet. Uh, one of them was uh, again at the Daily News. I worked with a uh, Russian emigre. Her her name was Mila Andre, and she was assigned to write a headline for a review of a restaurant. And it was a, a, a Russian restaurant called Caucasus. And she, she looked at the story and she wrote a headline that went, Viva's Hungry Soviet. <laughs> and the next day, she got yelled at something awful by the, the copy chief because it had nothing to do with the food. So, you know, things like that, those were moments, even though I didn't do those, uh, I didn't perpetrate those headlines, they, they stuck with me, those, those moments. Okay, let's segue to um, your other passion. One thing that my podcast colleague, Emmy Lederman, who's not here today, said that I've demonstrated that you don't have to fulfill your passions through your job. My job only has a, a peripheral connection to this podcast. For you, it's similar. Your podcast and the historian work that you've done has only a peripheral connection uh, to, your, to your role as a copy editor. So explain uh, what you do as an oral historian. Well, my, my father was a World War II veteran. He, he was wounded twice. And, you know, when I was a kid, he only told humorous stories about the war. He had trained for like four years, and then he finally gets into a battle, and he wanted to see what it was like, so he stuck his head up. That's the way he put it. And he was wounded by what was probably a piece of shrapnel. It might have been a bullet, but it went through his helmet, and it was stopped by tissue paper that was on the inside. And... Then uh, one of his fingers was like uh, cemented or, you know, uh, was injured. And I always wanted to record his stories about the war. And he had, he had a bad heart. He, he, was, uh, he was listed, I didn't know this until much later, but he was uh, classified as 90% disabled. Um, he had gone before a board, you know, and they classified his, him as disabled. He drove a school bus all his life. You know, it, uh, I never saw him as disabled, but he got a pension from it. And the last time he was in the hospital, I went out and I bought a Sony recording Walkman, a little tape recorder, and I was going to sit down with him in the hospital. I had a captive audience. And record what he remembered about the war. And I worked that the night before I went to the hospital and I left the tape recorder home and I went straight to the hospital. I figured I'll do it next time. And the next day he got out of the hospital and two weeks later, uh, he had a heart attack and passed away. And that, that was 1980, I, I was 30 years old. And then I, moved back into my parents' old apartment a few years later, and he was still getting mail. And he got a newsletter seven years after he died from the 712th Tank Battalion. You know, oh, that's the outfit he was in. I, I forgot he was even in a tank, you know. I, 
And so I wrote to the newsletter. I said, if anybody remembers uh, Lieutenant Elson, would they get in touch with me? I got a letter back saying, I didn't know your father, but we're having a reunion in two weeks. It's too late for the next newsletter. Come to the reunion. We'll go around, see what we could find. And the reunion was in Niagara Falls. So I went up there, New Niagara Falls, New York, and I went up uh, to the reunion. I get to the hotel and all these cars in the parking lot have bumper stickers that say, Tanks for the Memories, 712th Tank Battalion from World War II. So I go in and I found this, the fellow who wrote to me, Sam McFarland, and he took me around and we found three people who remembered my dad, which was, in retrospect, it was like finding a needle in a haystack because he was a replacement. He came in, he was wounded within a couple of days. He recovered. He came back and was wounded again within a couple of days. So he spent maybe a few days of the whole war with this group. And yet I found that the sergeant that he reported to and all the stories that he told, all I remembered was the name of a place where he was wounded and the name of a fellow officer who later was killed, but who he kind of bonded with. And so I would say, well, my dad mentioned this person and, and I would hear all these stories about him because he was one of the original officers. He was very well respected. And so, you know, I began to collect anecdotes about him. And then my father was wounded at a place called Dillingen. Now I, I knew nothing, almost nothing historically about World War II. And I'll, I'll say this, I thought, that the Battle of the Bulge, which, you know, there's so much about the Battle of the Bulge, I thought it was an American offensive, that the Americans were bringing the attack to the Germans. It was a German counteroffensive. You know, what did I know? You know, but I quickly learned, I learned that. But my father was wounded at a place called Dillingen, which is not in any history books. You know, I'd never heard of it, knew nothing about it except that he did go back there once uh, when he was older. But anyway, uh, I would say, oh, he was wounded at Dillingen. Oh, Dillingen, you know, boy, everybody knew Dillingen, you know, because they had, uh, they had crossed the Star River to attack this town. It was a city, actually. And then the Battle of the Bulge broke out. And here they had fought to take this, this city and they had to give it up and come back across the river and go back, go up into the Battle of the Bulge. So, you know, they all knew, you know, this place where my dad was wounded. And one thing led to another. And I just be became so enthralled by the stories, not, not my father's stories. I did get, you know, pretty much everything I was going to get that I learned about him. But the stories in the hospitality room, you know, where uh, I would walk in in the middle of a story and it was like somebody put glue, crazy glue on my feet. And I, and I was riveted. They'd open the car door in the parking lot to go out to lunch, three or four people. And somebody would be in the middle of the story. Nobody would get in the car until the story was finished. And they, they were great, great storytellers. 
and they had great stories to tell and they were not not all you know blood and guts you know like one of the first stories that that captured me was a guy talking about when he came home he had to confront the not confront but he had to face the mother of a buddy of his from the same town who got killed and he did you know much of the story was all the things he did to avoid having to face her until his father said look you know you got to you got to do this you know and so one thing led to another i would say look i had the tape recorder with me i said would you tell me that story i heard in the parking lot or in the in the hospitality room and you know i began doing this more and more this was 1987 that's a long time ago. <laughs> and the next and, thing you know, uh, you have 700 hours of, of footage. The, the next thing I know, I had 600 hours and I gave a talk at the, uh, when I came up to Connecticut, I gave a talk at the uh, Kiwanis Club and the MC, who's a local radio personality, you know, he was asking me uh, for a little background. And I said, oh, I got about 600 hours of, recorded interviews and he said 600 hours and he just kept repeating 600 <laughs> hours and it was then that i you know realized hey wait a minute this is uh you know this is really something pretty cool yeah absolutely um so all right again lot to unpack we'll, we'll pick one or two points here um i think what's what's kind of cool is the variety of the episodes that you have in your podcast uh, you have one that touches on tonsil removal. You have wives talking about their husbands. You have stories of holidays spent at war. You have stories of food. You have people singing on and off key. Do you have a favorite area? And is there an area that you haven't been able to get to that you wish that you had? First, uh, the tonsils. Uh, there was one fellow, Ed Stuver, who, uh, you know, he tell this story over and over again. And the story of how his tonsils came out was as graphic as anything that you heard of the blood and guts in combat, you know, uh, and he's, but he had a humorous way of telling it. And one, one thing about the stuff that I've learned is that after his tonsils came out, his, uh, they took him out in Chicago, uh, they took him out, uh, you know, in the town. And he said he had some Green River whiskey. And he leaned out the car window after having this Green River whiskey. And he said, there goes one tonsil, there goes the other. And I thought, gee, Green River whiskey, this must be real rot gut. Now, God bless the internet. You know, one, one day I figured I'd look up Green River whiskey and don't you know, it's like a, uh, a premier brand of whiskey from back then. Anyway, uh, go back now. I'll go back now to 2008. When after 20 years at the Bergen Record, I got laid off in the first month of the Great Recession. And the month I was laid off, 600,000 Americans were laid off. You know, it was, it was like really, uh, 
Now I was part of history. And then they, George H.W. Bush, or was it George W. Bush? W it was. Anyway, uh, did the first $700 billion bailout of the financial industry. Now, I, I got to back up a little bit. In 1994, with the 50th anniversary of D-Day coming up, the paper where I worked, the Bergen Record, the, my editor, I was on the copy desk, said, you do this uh, oral history stuff, go find some local D-Day veterans. So I interviewed a bunch of D-Day veterans. And then I also interviewed a lot of former prisoners of war. And now it's 2008, I've just been laid off. And I was kind of bummed out. Now they did this big financial bailout. And I thought, you know, gee, I've got all these stories and in different interviews of guys who jumped out of airplanes, these prisoners of wars who, whose plane was shot down, bailed out, these paratroopers who jumped into Normandy. And so what I did was I would cherry pick stories from different interviews and I put together a two hour set of stories of jumping out of airplanes. One guy jumped into uh, Sicily and the 82nd Airborne Division. He jumped into the middle of the Hermann Goring Panzer Division and got captured after a brief firefight. But anyway, uh, I put together two hours of different stories of guys jumping out of airplanes and I called it my bailout package, my own bailout package. <laughs> then I guess a couple months later, and, and I, by this time I had a presence on the internet. I started a website in 1997 and I called it the World War II Oral History website. And I would put up stories that I had done and so I, a few months after that first one, it was Valentine's Day was coming up and I was uh, digitizing a tape of a fellow who had been uh, a D-Day veteran and he had been on the flagship of the Utah Beach invasion fleet. And this was when I was doing all these uh, D-Day interviews and while I'm interviewing him, his wife was at the table and the phone rang. So the wife went and answered it. And she came back and it's one of your buddies. His ship was going to have a reunion in a couple of weeks. So he goes in and talks to the buddy. And I said to the wife, how did the two of you meet? And she told such a charming story. I think uh, uh, it was that they were at a church, a church uh, play or something or a recital and she was in the row in front of him or she might have been up on stage and he said to his mother you know he's in third grade he said you see that girl that's the girl I'm gonna marry so, something like that and it was just uh, and so then I thought you know she's not the first wife who sat in on an interview because I, I would do these interviews at the uh, reunions uh, conversations. I would plant the tape recorder in the middle of the table. And one minute they're talking about, uh, you know, somebody just retired. 
the next minute they're in the middle of the Battle of the Bulge. And, you know, so I had other wives were sitting in and making comments and telling stories. And so I put together a, actually, I, I put that story up, the audio on the, uh, on the internet. And I got a phone call from Lou Padnaki, the veteran, and he told me that his wife had just died. And he had found, the, his son had found the story on, on the internet and I felt terrible. I, I thought, what have I done? And he said they were so moved by it, you know, moved to tears, you know, that, that it meant so much to have that, you know, right to remember her, you know? And I said, gee, you know, that maybe it's not such a bad, bad thing. And I put together a collection of, you know, romance stories, you know, where uh, one couple met in uh, in science class while they were di dissecting a frog, you know, it, it, and just some really colorful stories. Uh, another couple got married at Cupid's Corner in Yuma, Arizona in 1943, uh, you know, things like that. And then I thought, you know, nobody, there's a lot of oral historians, there's a lot of, uh, the Veterans History Project has more, more recordings than I'll ever do, but nobody has ever done anything where you take certain universal themes and pick stories from different, different interviews and put them together Stories about food, you know, stories about dining on the front, stories about drinking, uh, you know, just uh, stories about uh, where, how they heard about Pearl Harbor and what they were doing. Uh, just themes that uh, pop up in different interviews that are almost universal. And so I began experimenting with it, and I've done about uh, probably 18 or 20 different uh, sets of some are two hours, some are one hour, of, and some have like 15 stories, some have eight stories. I did uh, one set with a religious theme. I, I, I did one where, uh, you know, I've heard so many, so many stories that there's no explanation where somebody had a premonition where, uh, like, like this one paratrooper said that, uh, you know, before they jumped into Normandy, there was a younger paratrooper. He was a rugged guy, you know, and there, there was kid Johnny, you know, who was like 19 years old. And he kind of took him under his wing and, you know, they were about to get on the plane and he sees him off, you know, staring into space. And, you know, he went over to cheer him up. He said, what's, well, you know, what's wrong? And the kid said, I'm going to die tomorrow. And he said, oh, some of us will, some of us won't. I, you know, I, I, I can recite this, you know, you ain't going to be one of them. And sure enough, he, he was killed like the first or second day in, in Normandy. And he said, you know, that stays with you, uh, you know, your whole life. And he was so, you know, it was so powerful that that got picked up in a couple of books. And one day I got an email from, uh, from somebody 
whose uncle was killed in the war, and he never knew, you know, anything about it until his mother died, and she, she, uh, you know, left him, or while she was ill, she gave him a box of mementos that her brother had left, and he discovered that his uncle was this young paratrooper who had the premonition, and he found he found the interview, you know, and his whole story has has. Uh, you know, evolved from that. He sent pictures and, and letters that his uncle had written to the paratroopers website. And it just, uh, things like that have come out of some of these interviews that I've done. So, they're, okay. Yeah, they're amazing. Like they, they're, uh, they're amazing in their level of detail. They're amazing in the ability to tell interesting things about the mundanity of day-to-day uh, -day life before things like battles fought and uh, overseas uh, issues that came up. I want to get to the, the last segment of the podcast, which is the advice portion. Uh, something popped into my head because it's been a theme throughout the conversation here. What advice do you have to people who, like me, like puns and enjoy using puns in journalism? You know, I I had a fellowship where I taught uh, a news news writing up at Syracuse University for one semester. The only reason I got it was because nobody else would dare would volunteer to go <laughs> up to Syracuse in the winter. And so, the the one thing I tried to impress upon the students was if you can make your readers laugh. You know, if you can find humor in a story, you, you've got it made, you know. Uh, and it's the same thing in copy editing. If you, if you are not afraid to take a risk, you know, to, uh, to mangle, the, that's one thing, you know, that I've been thinking about, you know, because as a copy editor, your job is to you know, to guard the English language, to make sure that it's not, uh, you know, not, uh, you know, torn up or not misused. As a headline writer, a good headline writer, your job is to mangle the English language, to take a word and add a, add a something at the end. I mean, like uh, just the other day, uh, a local, a local, uh, Parks and Rec Department was, because of the pandemic, they had to cancel the St. Patrick's Day parade, right? So they're going to have a St. Patrick's Day party on June 10th. And I thought, uh, you know, what, what kind of headline should I write? I, I did not write this headline, but what I was going to write, I put it on the page. And the headline was St. Patrick's Day June 10th, question mark. You got a corned beef with that? And then I would put corned in parentheses. You know, where uh, you you butcher the English language, so to speak. I wound up just go writing a straight headline, you know, because I... But corned I, beef is more fun. Yes, it would have been more fun. Yes. At the Daily News, I would have done that. Yep. But, you know, I, 
I try to be a little less, more less controversial. <laughs> well, I like it. I, that's the kind of that's the kind of headlining headline writing for me. I grew up on the New York Daily News. Um, they don't uh, they don't make headlines like that uh, necessarily anymore. All right. So one one other advice question. What advice do you have for journalists and oral historians regarding something that you are an expert in? Asking questions. Well, in terms of asking questions and doing interviews, I would say, listen, listen to some great interviewers and two come to mind. One is uh, Terry Gross on uh, National Public Radio. She's got a program called Fresh Air. You can go uh, uh, and it's done as a podcast. You can listen to some of her old interviews. She is a brilliant interviewer. And the other one, also a national public radio or in the local radio station, but it's done as a podcast, is Kion Wolf. That's C-H-I-O-N. Kion Wolf has a podcast called Audacious. And she is just a wonderful, very heartfelt interviewer. And she picks kind of uh, unusual subjects. And, and I would give that a listen and just pick up her style of interviewing. I would not recommend my own style because <laughs> I never really gave it much thought. I would, I would go into conversations. I would not prepare questions in advance. I was lucky because, you know, we're interviewing the tankers, my father's tank battalion. Uh, after like a year or two of saying, were you, you know, how was the food or were you scared or did you get wounded? You know, then I could say, were you at Dillingen or, uh, you know, were you in the horse cavalry and things that I could ask more pointed questions. But I, I would not really prepare, you know, a, a methodology, so to speak, of uh, I would not go into an interview with uh, with a set, uh, set agenda. So don't, you know, you could listen to some of my interviews because I do have it like a they're casual. Yep. And one thing also that I found is, it, well, two things actually. If if you're interviewing somebody like a veteran about the Battle of the Bulge, and you know that he was, uh, you know, involved in something, don't start the interview. Tell me about the Battle of the Bulge. You know, where, how did you get into the service? Where did you grow up? You know, just. Get the conversation flowing a little bit, maybe 15, 20 minutes later. Now you're at the Battle of the Bulge and he's more relaxed. He's not as conscientious and, you know, stuff comes out. And also, if, if there's like a key incident or event, try to get them to come back to it maybe two or three times uh, because each time there will be another detail that was omitted the first time. And then also, you know, if you can corroborate by interviewing other people, you know, familiar with the same event. I mean, I, again, I, I've been lucky and then I was able to get like four different accounts of the same barroom brawl in Phoenix City, Alabama, you know, and, and not just from one person. I got an interview with 
from the guy who got beat up, uh, from the fellow who was with him. So, you know, you know, try to get corroboration because also, you know, sometimes people embellish and uh, details will, will conflict. One, one thing that, uh, now I never saw the movie, but it's, it's played a major role in my work. And that's this Japanese classic called Rashomon, where the same event is shown from different perspectives. And, and so, you know, I, I've always considered some of the interviews that I've done to be Rashomon-like, even though I've never see, seen it, which I guess I ought to, ought to see it. Maybe uh, it's on YouTube or I can stream it somewhere. Nice. I like it. So you recommend Rashomon and Terry Gross. Uh, so yeah. that's a good combination. All right. So the last question that we ask here, we ask it to every guest. Is there another journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute? Not really, uh, other than uh, National Public Radio. You know, they, they do such a, uh, such a good in-depth job of covering, covering the news, but I never really belonged to uh, like a, the, the New Jersey Press Association or- uh, then know, let, any, let, uh, let me flip the question then. Is there a person that you would like to salute? No, most of, you know, most of the people I'd like to salute, you know, or, you know, have been, uh, well, I, I would say find a mentor, you know, that, because uh, that's something that the, the kids that I see coming into journalism, they, they study in school, like, but they don't, they don't have like a mentor, or they may have in college, but in the, you know, at the newspaper, to give them guidance. And that, that's something, uh, there, there's no one really that I would uh, would recommend that I know personally, uh, other than the people that I, you know, I grew up with in the journalism business who are no longer really practicing. Some of them are no longer even alive. Well, we're glad that, that you are, and we're glad that you do the work that you do, both copy editing and uh, oral history. Uh, Aaron Elson, thank you for joining us. I thank you for, uh, for having me. I always wanted to say that. <laughs> <laughs> for more information on the podcast that Aaron does and the books that he's written, you can go to his website, AaronElson.com. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who ran the journalism program at my alma mater, the College of New Jersey, Trenton State College, for more than 30 years. Dr. Cole would have liked this episode. He liked copy editing and he liked history. Dr. Cole also liked wordplay and creative work in headlines. I once headlined a story about the college soccer team going to California for the national championship. Go West, young women! Dr. Cole was all about the Horace Greeley historical reference. He would always say that doing that was worth it, because the people who got it would enjoy it, and the people who didn't, they'd probably keep reading anyway. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.